Well, good morning. Happy Father's Day to those of you that have had the privilege and joy of changing diapers and staying up late and never sleeping. Isn't it great? So good. I'm young and naive. I only have a two-year-old, so maybe I'm not as seasoned as you. But happy Father's Day to all of you who have children. Uh, it is such a privilege and an honor uh, that God bestows on us to, to raise kids. And hopefully our kids feel the same as they're being raised by us. Uh, it's 2 Street. But uh, this morning I just wanted to start off by saying this is not a typical Father's Day message. So whatever I'm about to share isn't directed to you specifically as fathers. This is for everyone. But especially because you are fathers, I hope your ears are a little bit more perked. Um, there's lots of stuff in here this morning. Uh, to talk about what our Father in Heaven has done for us. Hopefully these last few weeks you've been tracking with us. We've been going through the book of Philippians. uh, And during this time together, we have focused on a bunch of different things. Um, But just to recap a little bit, last week we talked about how Paul, uh, his whole life, was summed up in sort of this one statement, to live is Christ, to die is gain. And his whole life after his conversion and transformation became all about spreading the gospel, proclaiming Jesus everywhere. His love for Christ went above and beyond many others. The way he loved and served everyone, how he responded to adversity and persecution, all of it flowed out of who Christ was and what Jesus did for him. For Paul, his mind said, it is far better for me to be with Christ. Not that this world was so awful and terrible and worth abandoning. There was a point of which he would have liked to have left because of the hardships he was going through. But there's also the other side of it, too, where he said, I need to stay. There's still work to be done. And so he wanted to remain to be with this young church that he started all those years ago. And we talked about what it meant to live life well. And we left things off at verse 27 in chapter 1, where he tells this young church to make sure that their manner of life is worthy of the gospel of Christ, where he hopes also that they may experience unity And he says, be firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. And he calls them to this and encourages them to not be afraid, to stand strong despite hardship, despite adversity, for the sake of Christ. And so we carry on that same conversation as it moves into chapter 2. But before we get that, I'd love to open up in a quick word of prayer. So let's pray. Generally, Father, we thank you that your word is living and active, that it is sharper than a double-edged sword, that it can speak into our hearts no matter where we're at in our journey in life, whether we call you Lord and follow you with our lives or we're just not sure. God, I pray that this morning, wherever we're at, that you would speak to exactly what you want to say to our hearts and in our lives. And so, God, we pray first and foremost at the outset that you would fill this place with your presence. That as I'm speaking here, that it's, it's words for me, sure. But Jesus, I pray that your word goes through with clarity. And Spirit, we pray that you would move, stir hearts, stir minds, to, to understand what it means to strive after, to follow you in all the things that Paul is exhorting this young church to do. There's so much in here for us to apply to our lives. And so, God, I pray this morning that you would speak and move. And praise things in the name of Jesus. Amen. So there's a story of uh, Muhammad Ali. I'm not sure if it's true. I tried to fact check. Uh, it seemed like it was legit. But there's a story of Muhammad Ali when he was on a plane. He was in his prime. He had just started his career. And so in his prime, he was on this plane and it was just about ready to take off. And so the flight attendant comes up to him and says, hey, Mr. Ali, you need to buckle up. The flight is about to leave. And he responded brashly. He said, Superman don't need no seatbelt. Superman don't need no seatbelt. 
And the stewardess quickly came back and said, Superman didn't need an airplane either. (laughs) Ali, now humbled, fastened his seatbelt. I want to say to you this morning, fasten your seatbelts. This isn't going to be a crazy bumpy ride. But this morning, we're going to talk about what Paul has to say in chapter 2. And if you've ever read through this book in Philippians, chapter 2, out of the entire Bible, this is probably one of the most prominent passages talking about what it exactly did Christ do in our lives. And in, in the context of the overarching story of redemption, it is an amazing passage, and we'll be focusing on this. And it is such a huge, huge component to the subject of humility. So at the outset... The first question that Paul wants to ask them in verse 1 as we get to that point, after encouraging to live lives worthy of the gospel, he opens chapter 2 with this verse, this passage. And he says, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy. And we'll pause there for a second. Paul opens up this passage to refresh their memory. He's saying, go back to who you've been, who you were, what you know about me, what you know about Jesus. Let's sit and ponder this for a minute. And as you're going through those statements, you could phrase each one of those statements as a question. As if Paul were to say, tell me, tell me guys, what do you say about this? Do you find any encouragement in Christ, O Philippian church? Are you experiencing comfort and love? Is the spirit present and active among you? Are you experiencing affection and sympathy? And in each of these statements, Paul is seeking for them to answer and respond to those questions. The church would have to pause and reflect, are we encouraged by Christ? Yeah, I think we are. Look at all that's happened. And if you go back to the early days of Paul's ministry when he started this church, it started from nothing. It was just a handful of different people from different backgrounds and walks of life. And it comes to this vibrant, growing church. And so as they reflect on that, totally, Christ is definitely doing something here. We are growing Many people have come to faith and we are partnered with Paul and we're seeing the gospel spread and it's making an impact through his ministry. Are we comforted and loved? Yeah. Paul has been away, but he loves to remind us that he's constantly praying for us. He loves to remind us how much he loves us and cares about us, that we are growing and he's encouraging us in our walk and in our faith with Jesus. Are we seeing the work of the Spirit? Yeah. You can totally see it. Look how things have been going. There's no way any of this could have happened without the Spirit's leading. It all started with a vision of the Spirit speaking into that vision and into Paul's life and saying, hey, come over here to Macedonia. There is work over here to be done. The Spirit was leading, and in that leading, the direction for the church began and it became vibrant, and people are continuing to come to Christ. Are we experiencing affection and sympathy? Yeah. While both Paul and their situations are a little bit different, it's encouraging to know that they were both supporting each other. Both were going through different hardships, Paul being in prison, and we're not really told what they're going through as a Philippian church, but we can imagine there's some adversity, some opposition, whether that's from within or from out, they're going through some hard stuff, but they're both supporting each other, spurring one another on. Don't give up. Keep fighting. So yeah, Paul, they would say, We are experiencing all of those things. Those things are all components of our church life right now. And then as if to go on, Paul would say, okay then. If you have said yes to all of those statements, then listen to what I have to say next. Because this is how you ought to think. This is how you ought to live. And so Paul continues this. After saying all of those things, this is how he says, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. 
Do nothing from selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each one of you look not only to his own interests, but the interests of others. There are a number of action items Paul is giving in this list, um, and he's calling them to some pretty amazing stuff. First, he's saying, have the same love. And if you want to phrase that differently, it's, he's just saying, love all of those people in your community. Love everyone. Second, he's saying, be in full accord. That is to say, agree with one another. Be of the same mind. No fighting. Be of one mind. No cliques. No exclusions. Be unified. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit. Serve one another. Count others more significant than yourselves. Exude humility. Don't just focus on your own interest. Look to the interests of others. Genuinely care about those people that are in your midst. Care about their lives that when you ask the question, how are you doing? It's not just, how are you doing? I'm good. Okay, great. Walking along. The question would be, how are you really doing? Is what Paul is saying. How is your walk with God? Genuinely asking those questions. He's saying, ask people. Take an interest in their lives, in their highs and in their lows. And as you go through all these statements, this is a tall order. These are massive, significant things that Paul is asking the church to do, to live out, to exemplify to those before them. And for many different facets of society, whether you are churched or unchurched, these would be really, really hard to live out. These are difficult things. And the overarching emphasis of each of those statements, it could all be summed up in the one word, humility. In humility, love everyone. In humility, have have an agreeable attitude with one another. In humility, be of one mind. Don't do anything out of selfish ambition and going on with those other ones. Recognizing that within community, it will be a challenging thing. It's really hard to love people that aren't really lovable. That's just a human thing, right? Our natural response is to love people when it's easy. But Paul is saying, don't do it when it's just easy. Love people even in the difficulty, even when it's hard, messy, super awkward love on them don't step out of that to make sure our decisions don't get out of hand to the point where our differences of opinion on things like doctrine theology and how we ought to live to disagree on those things that cause dissension division resentment or even church splits that we don't pick and choose who we get to get along with where we have different camps of people where others feel unwelcomed where we seek to serve rather than coming to be served all the time. That we find places to support the community where it is needed. That when we talk to people, we show a genuine concern for their well-being. That we pray for one another. That we step into those messy situations even when it's hard. Because our interests are aligned with a humble attitude. And this is the kind of thing Paul is getting at when he exhorts them to this way of life. As if to say, Paul, this is really hard. This is, do you know you know people, right? Like, we're not all perfect. This is going to be a really hard thing to do. And in their world, just as much as our world right now, everywhere we look around, pride lurks and stirs within the hearts of people to think and act in ways that are super contrary to this line of thinking that Paul is talking about. It is pride that says, me first, I want to get what's mine. It cuts in lines and cuts in traffic. It is self-serving and hardly attempts or even refuses to serve others on the basis of rejecting the possibility of having to stoop so low or to even be inconvenienced. 
It neglects those in need. And it consistently says, me over we. It is why many relationships experience difficulty, why divorce rates are so high. Both people are vying for their needs to be met over the other. And pride is the cause of much unforgiveness and bitterness in our world. And there are many who refuse to make that first step in apologizing. Many who refuse. Pride points fingers instead of owning up. And pride sometimes seems innocent enough. But with enough force, pride can hurt or even destroy many of the things in our lives. And Paul knows this all too well. And so he says this, keep this out of your life entirely. Don't even let it be a part of your community. There is no place for pride here. There's no place. Don't live like this. This is the way the world lives with its cutthroat, clambering over everyone mentality. There is a better way. And we have an even better example. And he then moves on to that example. And he says in verse 5, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Have this mind among yourselves. Don't sit there and think, this is the way it has to be. This is the way church needs and ought to function. Because my way seems to be the most logical and better of the options around here. Paul is saying, no, that's not the mind you are called to have. The mind you are called to have is that of Jesus. It is not your way or the highway or that your way is the best way or only way. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. In a way, this is Paul's what would Jesus do bracelet. Have this mind among you. What would Jesus do in this situation? How would he act, respond, behave? And he would say, look to Jesus if you want to have his mind. If you want to have his mind, you need to know what his mind is like. And the mind he is calling them to have is possible because of the very nature of Christ being in them. When we come believers, the Spirit of God comes and is now dwelling within, and therefore having this mindset becomes available to anyone and everyone who comes to faith. To have this mind is not something one ascends to, to sit and reflect and meditate constantly day and night and just hope that one day you'll get there. Something that you just work or will yourself for it to become something a part of your life. When God gets a hold of you like the way he did with Paul on that road to Damascus, there is a radical transformation that takes place where the old is gone and the new has come. We always have to reiterate at these statements, this does not mean you have attained perfection, sadly. That when we come to faith, God doesn't just take all of this away and suddenly you are now this perfect, infallible human being. The old is gone and the new has come, but the old still comes back and fights and clambers and says, what about me? Let me back. I'm important. The old way of living It wants to come back to get you to behave, to think. But when we are radically transformed, there is a shift in our thinking from who you were to who you are now in Christ. So the mind Paul is speaking of is there for those who are in Christ. They just need to flex some muscle memory and be reminded of some really important truths. Therefore, Paul leads them on in these next passages to show what this mind of Christ is all about. So to go back to verse 5 and 6 again. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Let us start with that first. Jesus in the form of God. Paul starts off this, this 
concept, this idea of humility, by focusing on the divine nature of Jesus. The connotation along with this is that Jesus being God was not created. That if he was God, he has existed eternally. The word translated form that we have in our, in our Bibles, that word form comes from two Greek words. The first word is morphe, and the second one is schema. While they have similarities in, their, in this idea of form, that concept, that word, it is, it is different in the way that they are expressed. They differ. Morphe means the substance or the essential nature. In, in a way, you're saying this is the essence of the form. It is unchanging, whereas schema is more about the transitionary state of the form. That is to say, it can experience change. It goes through different experiences. And to clarify this a bit further, William Barclay conveys it like this. The morphe of any human being is, is their humanity. And this never changes. But the schema is continually changing. A baby, a child, a boy, a youth, a man of middle age, an old man always have the morphe of humanity. But the outward schema changes all the time. Thus, when Paul speaks of Jesus being in the form of God, he's using this word morphe. He's not saying Jesus is kind of like God. He's a little bit like God. Paul is saying this word morphe. He is stating quite clearly, Jesus is God. There is no doubt about it. And as such, Jesus has no beginning and no end. He is the alpha and he is the omega. And in verse 7, which we will get to in a moment, he also uses this same word, morphe, to describe Jesus taking on the form of a servant. And in both instances of Paul's use of the word morphe, he is stating that Jesus is both fully divine and fully human. His divinity and whether or not he had a point of origin were highly contested throughout church history, especially in those early days as they were forming doctrine in their theology as a Christian community. So much so their contestion that different councils had to debate relentlessly, asking themselves, is this true? Is this heresy? Is this what the Bible says about this particular subject matter? They had so many debates to get to the heart of the matter of certain doctrines, and the famous Council of Nicaea sought to put to rest the one heretical argument that denied Jesus' divinity in particular. They wanted to do away with it, said, we need to really get to the heart of the matter. Was Jesus divine or not? And over the years, different opinions arose that tried to argue that Jesus was like God, that he was never really a man, A man named Arius, for example, believed Jesus was the first and greatest created human being. That Jesus was the first and best. He was kind of like the the mock-up and everyone, this is the pinnacle. This is the guy you got to be like, the created being. But at the council, a man named Athanasius defended Christ being fully divine. And at that council, we have this creed. Maybe you are familiar with it. And this is what it says. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father by whom all things are made. Jesus is God, Paul says. And then he moves on to say that in the next part in verse 6, in in connection with that, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. So we have Jesus here being God, but he didn't take that equality with God as something to be grasped. Some translations put that phrase this way. He did not consider equality with God as something to be used for his own advantage. 
As God, Jesus could have held on to every single right and privilege that he had in heaven. Think about it. King of kings, Lord of lords. This is him sitting on his throne in heaven with all of the angels surrounding him, worshiping constantly in all of this amazing splendor. He could have held on to all of that. He could have fought for those rights and stood his ground in a refusal to part ways with that kind of status. But in this passage, we read that he didn't even attempt to use them for his own gain or to his advantage. As if to say, how can I accomplish this mission the Father sending me on to do? How can I accomplish this without having to really experience the terrible, painful existence that I'll have to endure? If he had taken advantage of his position, that is the question he would ask. How can I go through this mission without getting hurt? What is the easiest route for me in this position? He didn't even ask the question. He didn't consider it. But rather sought to give of himself selflessly for us. And in verse 7, it makes this, this statement that much more clear and more amazing. In Philippians 2, verses 6 to 7, it says, Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Some have argued that the word emptied meant that he fully gave up his divinity, that he sort of just left it on the side and said, that's not part of me anymore, I'm just going to be fully human. And this is not the case. In his commentary on Philippians, Jason C. Meyer explains it this way. Emptied means divestiture of position or prestige. The only way for the Son of God to take on the form of a slave was to enter the world and be born as a man. Therefore, the pre-incarnate Son of God divested himself of position and prestige, not by subtracting his deity, but by adding humanity and becoming the God-man, both fully God and fully man. In no way did Jesus give up his divinity. If we were to use different terminology, terminology, one could say he didn't give it up, but he did lay it aside. He left it on the side. And he was God, but he didn't use it to his own advantage. He allowed himself to be limited in order to experience what it meant to be like you, to be like me. And you could look at the example of Jesus in the wilderness being tempted to turn that stone into bread. He totally could have done it. There was nothing in that moment that prevented Jesus from doing that thing other than it being sinful. Jesus could have totally turned that stone into bread. He had the power, but he didn't. And he didn't do it not to just simply beat the devil and say, hey, I got one over you. He did it because it was another way of him saying, this is what it means to be human. I will go through it. Jesus experienced hunger, weakness, exhaustion, sorrow, He experienced everything and yet did not make use of his divinity to cheat. He laid it aside so he could say, I know how you feel. I know what you're going through. I know what this human thing is like. In another commentary, the author says, Jesus didn't relinquish his deity. He surrendered his rights and prerogatives. And he did so with complete willingness Paul then goes right down to the heart of this section in verse 8. In verse 8 it says, And being found in human form, remember that word morphe, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. We start off with Paul saying, This is the Jesus we're talking about. We're starting up here, the pinnacle of Christ, standing in heaven, seated on the throne, high and lifted up. 
no point of reference for origin. He has always been and always will be. He's equal to the Father. He had honor. He had glory. He had power. And yet, he lays all of that aside so that he can identify with us, fully God, fully man. And he steps down from heaven, taking the form of a servant. God incarnate, born of a woman, lived as we lived, breathed the same air. He laughed. He cried. He worked. He slept. And he spent his whole life proclaiming this kingdom of God. In those three years of ministry when he came out of that wilderness and the Spirit of God fell on him, not much time was wasted. Right away, Jesus goes and he's proclaiming the kingdom of God, giving sight to the blind, setting the captive free, healing the sick, casting out demons, and never once committing a sin. And because of his obedience, he died a cruel death on a cross simply because he did what God called him to do. The unimaginable pain and suffering of the torture he experienced. Frank Thielman expresses it this way, Crucifixion was the cruelest form of official execution in the Roman Empire. And although a Roman citizen might experience it if convicted of high treason, it was commonly reserved for the lowest classes, especially slaves. Jesus died the death of a slave, a servant. Who would do such a thing? Why would one do such a thing? Who would lower themselves to such a degree to go that far? Pride would say, nope, I refuse to sink that low. I would never go that low. I would never do that. This is beneath me. Pride would say that. I won't go that far. It takes sacrifice. All throughout Christ's life on earth, all he ever did was sacrificially serve. I think of the story of Jesus. He has just heard of his cousin John. He was murdered, killed over a silly thing. And Jesus gets this news that his cousin has passed away and he's, he's broken up about it. He's sad. He's lost someone that he cares deeply about. And in that moment, he's just trying to get away to reflect, to process, to pray, to think over what has just happened. And as he's trying to get away, time after time, same thing happens over and over again. The crowds press in and they follow him and he can't find that time alone. In trying to find that, the crowds find him. And we are told in Matthew 14 that upon seeing them, our response might have been from a human perspective, if I was Jesus, I might have seen them and said, go away, you're bothering me. Can't you, do you not understand that my cousin just died? Can you not give me five minutes? But no, when you read in Matthew 14, this is what it says. Jesus had compassion on them and healed their sick. Ridiculous. He's going through so much in this one moment and he says, you know what? That can wait. And he has compassion. And he steps into their hardships, heals their sicknesses. Or the story of Jesus washing the disciples' feet. Another moment to realize this is a, a job of a servant. Jesus doing something that, for all intents and purposes, is beneath him. But he does it. The job of a servant. Jesus did not see any of these jobs or opportunities as hindrances to his image. He never thought once, I wonder what people will think if I do this. 
I'm going to lose some friends over this. It might cost me my life, my job. He never thinks of those as being hindrances to his image or his popularity. He saw each as an opportunity, a moment to serve. He was humble. And this was especially shown on his going to the cross. Meyer writes, The cross, this shows the radical measure of Christ's humility. He did not even regard himself above death, even the cruelest, most shameful and painful death ever devised. Furthermore, the cross is the measure of Jesus' humility, the lengths to with which he was willing to go in obedience to his Father. Even the lowest position possible was not too low for the humble mind of Christ. Only the greatest humility could willingly accept the lowest place possible. He was not too proud to wear our skin or bear our sin. Church, this is the mind of Christ. This is the way he thinks, responds, acts. The life that lives and seeks to serve others and not only seeks to be served. To come into the body of Christ, to come into community and say, what can I do here? Where is help needed? There are many who come into many communities to be served who forgot that when Christ came, he came to serve and called us to live like he did, to love and serve others like he did. Church, we must never, ever, ever forget that. That when you come into this place and you catch yourself thinking, what am I going to get out of this? To catch that thought and say, Jesus, what do you want me to do? How do you want me to respond this evening or this morning or wherever you find yourself to the needs of those in your community? He came down from on high and showed us what serving one another really looks like. Without selfish ambition, without vain conceit, but with love, compassion. I'm talking about God. You know that, right? Like this is amazing. It's ridiculous from a human perspective that the God of the universe would do any of this for you and for me. C.S. Lewis writes in his book, Miracles. In the Christian story, God descends to reascend. He comes down, down from the heights of absolute being into time and space, down into humanity. But he goes down to come up again and bring the whole ruined world up with him. One has the picture of a strong man stooping lower and lower to get himself underneath some great complicated burden. He must stoop in order to lift. He must almost disappear under the load entirely before he, is incredibly, before he incredibly straightens his back and marches off with the whole mass swaying on his shoulders. Or one may think of a diver first reducing himself to nakedness, then glancing in midair, then gone with a splash, vanished, rushing down through green and warm water into the black and cold, down through increasing pressure into the death-like region of ooze and slime and old decay, then up again, back to color and light, his lungs almost bursting, till suddenly he breaks the surface again, holding in his hand the dripping, precious thing he went down to recover. Jesus went from the greatest height, the highest of heights, in order to come to the lowest of lows. He went as far down as he needed to go in order to free us, to pull us up out of that grip of sin and death. It was not too low for him. 
because for him, the price, the cost was worth it. And he chose to pay it in full. Not in installments. (laughs) In full. There's no room. And it's a hard thing to, uh, to, to live out and embrace in our lives. But there is no room for pride when it comes to following Jesus. In Mark 9.35, when the disciples were bickering about who would be the greatest in heaven, Jesus sits the twelve down and says this to them. If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. Paul is held on to that same teaching and tells the Philippians, consider others more significant than yourselves. We've read Paul's train of thought He starts off with Christ on high in all of his splendor, being brought so low with all of its shame and pain. And then in verse 9, we carry on and we read that because of Christ's life and because of his death, in verses 9 and 10, he says, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. When you read through what Jesus did, at no point in this section or in the life of Christ do you ever hear the words out of Jesus say this, I'm doing this so that I can get a reward. I'm doing this because God has called me to do it and I'm just waiting for compensation. When I get this, I'll get my reward. There is no such thought in the life of Christ. There is, no, there is no, I'll do this for you if you do something for me. The whole aspect of Christ stepping into our lives was a free will thing. There was no point of reference for him to say, I want something, Father, when I come back from this death thing. You better pay in full. This was tough. I want my reward. He didn't do any of it for that. He didn't ask for it. He didn't even seek out that exaltation. But the Father bestowed it on him willingly and rightfully. Now he is highly exalted, and there is nothing and no one exalted higher than Jesus. Furthermore, because of his sacrificial death, whereupon he paid the ultimate price for our sins and subsequent freedom, God has given him the name above all names. So that just at that name alone, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, whether in heaven, on earth, or under the earth. And another way of putting it, that is to say whether angels in heaven, whether people, human beings on the earth, and the demons below, there's not a single created being that will be exempt from bending their knee to Jesus Christ. There will come a day when Christ returns. And I don't know where you stand, but there will be some who will confess that he is Lord with exuberant joy. But there will be others who do so out of fear and trembling. Even the demons themselves will have no choice but to bow before the King of kings and Lord of lords. It was a dangerous thing in Paul's day to call anyone Lord. He didn't just say something like that walking down the street. Caesar, who cares? I follow a different Lord. No. The only Lord was Caesar. And to say otherwise meant severe punishment or death. For the Father to place that name above all names on Jesus, meant even too that Caesar himself, in all of his glory, in all of his splendor, 
was not exempt from bowing his knee to Christ, whether in his life, but most certainly in his death. Calling Jesus Lord these days in our culture, that's, that's difficult. For many of us, we don't walk around saying that either. Back then, they were afraid to say it because there was risk of death. You walk down the street of Ottawa, there's no risk of death calling Jesus Lord. At least there shouldn't be. Calling Jesus Lord opens you up in our culture to all forms of ridicule, mockery. Certainly nothing as severe as it used to be in Paul's day. There are places, however, in our world that experience extreme difficulty to even just say the name Jesus. Abandonment, being ostracized, facing prison time or death. Yet there are many who are willing to go that far because of how far Christ went for us. It takes humility to live the way Paul is encouraging this young church to live. You can't do this kind of thing in your own strength. You don't just wake up one day and say, I'm going to do this thing, that, this humility thing, and I'm going to be really good at it. If you say that right away, you're not humble. <laughs> the question, the question of how, this question of humility, how, will always be a point of contention in our lives. There will be days when our old self comes creeping back and says, fight for yourself. Take a stand. Are you really going to let them treat you that way? How can you be humble amidst such awful circumstances? I want to close shortly. Before I get to that, I want you to hear this statement by Martin Lloyd-Jones when someone once asked him that same question. Here's how that conversation went. This is Martin Lloyd-Jones. A friend was asking me the other day, how can I be humble? And he felt there was pride in him, and he wanted to know how to get rid of it. He seemed to think that I had some patent remedy and could tell him, do this or do that or do this other thing, and you will be humble. I said, I have no such method or technique. I can't tell you to get down on your knees and believe in prayer because I know you soon will be proud of that as well. There's only one way to be humble, and that is to look into the face of Jesus Christ. You cannot be anything else when you see him. That is the only way. Humility is not something you can create within yourself. Rather, you look at him, you realize who he is and what he has done, and you are humbled. I want to read that again. Humility is not something you can create within yourself. Rather, you look at him, you realize who he is and what he has done, and you are humbled. How do we do this? <laughs> we just read. It's not something you can muster up for yourself. First point of reference for any of this, how to be humble, it means believing in Jesus. It means believing in Jesus and receiving his light and his life in us through the empowerment of his spirit. Through his spirit, he changes everything. We cannot begin to even think of change unless we first humbly surrender our lives to Jesus. In laying it all down, because in the laying down of our lives, we are lifted up to a new life in Christ. Jesus saves. We need this daily. I need this daily. This consistent reminder that the remedy to pride 
is Jesus. To look at his life and be reminded that that is what humility looks like. So when you stand up one day and you find yourself thinking those thoughts of, I'm better than that person, or I refuse to do that task, that's for someone else. You immediately can go to that thought, how would have Jesus done this? And you would be put to shame because Jesus would have done it without a question. That is not a condemnation, church. It is a hard truth that Jesus is calling us to live in. All throughout scripture, he, he reminds his disciples at various times, these are hard things to live out. These aren't done on a whim or easy, but they can be done. The giving up of oneself for the sake of the other with no expectation for return or reward, but simply because of our response to Jesus who first exemplified that for us through his very own life, his own death, an amazing resurrection. How do we do this? We look at Jesus. I don't want to spend too much time, but in the why, why do we do this? I just want to read this passage really quickly. Don't worry, Matt, I don't have it, so don't worry about that. But in verse 14 of chapter 2, he's just given them all this foundation. This is who Jesus is. This is what he's done. This is how we ought to respond. And then he says this in verse 14 of 2. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God, without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. That is the why. We live our lives in humility the way Jesus called us to, not for our, just for our sakes, ultimately, yes, for the sake of others, but the others not just in the church body, the others who are not part of the flock. So that when they see your good deeds, you know that whole passage in Matthew, let your light shine before men, that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. Or in 1 John where it says, they will know you are Christians by your love. These are the ways we let our light shine before the world around us. But we cannot anticipate or even expect any aspect of humility without even going to Jesus first. The giving up of oneself for the sake of the other with no expectation for return or reward, but simply because of our response to Jesus who first exemplified that for us through his own life, his death, and resurrection. Let's pray. God, we are your people, and you've called and placed a high standard that, at least for me speaking on my own terms, it's impossible. How do you attain this kind of lifestyle, this behavior, this attitude? God, the selfishness that permeates throughout our culture in our own lives, we all wrestle with it. No one's exempt. We all have flashes of pride. But God, it is in those moments, those flashes that come up that, God, I pray that you'd help us to just catch that thought and to say, this isn't of Christ. This isn't how Christ would respond. That when we're called to things that are uncomfortable, difficult, awkward, that we wouldn't respond in pride to think that that's, that's not my job, that's someone else's, that's someone else's trivial task. God, you have placed us all in the church. Some are hands, some are feet. 
We are all called to give of our giftings and our abilities. And so, God, I pray that you would allow us to live in that, to work in those giftings and in those abilities without thinking ourselves better than those around us. That the church, not just Eastgate, but the church global, would exemplify a life that is humble, Christ-like, so that the world, when the world looks on, they don't see a bunch of dis- dysfunctional, bickering, infighting people, but a people that genuinely love and care for one another. People that say, you first, I'm second. God, help us to live this out as the church. The world is looking on. Our testimony seems sometimes fairly weak. But God, if you would just give us the grace and the ability to live this out in our world, the motivation, the drive, Holy Spirit, would you work in our lives so abundantly and amazingly that these things could be seen by those who are around us, the way we live, the way we act, talk, and carry ourselves. God, help us to be a humble people because you showed us humility first. Pray these things in your name. Amen.